0: Hello, Cass Cowboys, and welcome to this week's episode of the Pokes Podcast. My name is Kevin Sharp, and this week we'll be talking with Dr. Emily Graham, Assistant Professor in the Department of History at Oklahoma State University. Dr. Graham's research examines the intersection of politics and religion in medieval Europe. Her research interests include sanctity, monastic orders, religious reform and heretical movements, and papal politics. Her article, Notre Dame has Shaped the Intellectual Life of Paris for Eight Centuries, was featured in both The Conversation and the Houston Chronicle. Today we'll be examining the historical impact of such buildings as Notre Dame and the impact historical buildings have upon Oklahoma and Oklahoma State University. Uh, so Dr. Graham, welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for, for joining us today.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure.
0: So. In the past year, Dr. Graham, we've had fires destroy some iconic landmarks and locations all around the world, such as Brazil's National Museum and the Notre Dame Cathedral. In your mind, what's the greatest loss that these represent?
1: Yeah, we have it's been a bad, bad year for <laughs> historic sites. Um, I mean, historical monuments like Notre Dame. That same day, there was a small fire in the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, which is a really important site for Islam, Judaism, Christianity. There have been, you know, just a few weeks before that, sites of religious and cultural significance here in the U.S., like three historically black churches in Louisiana um, burned down from arson. And then, of course, the National Museum in Brazil, which is just a devastating um, loss. And that many fires close together, it's really unusual, but the root cause of them isn't. Um, so, I want to talk about that for a minute. Absolutely. If you'll yeah, indulge no, me.
0: That, that, that's what was going to be <laughs> one of my other questions is like, what do you think, you, what is the cause of all of these things happening so close together? So Yeah,
1: yeah. Honestly, um, lack of funding and lack of sort of will to invest in historic preservation is a huge problem. Um, around the world. There's been this chronic underinvestment in cultural and historic preservation. Um, UNESCO says that many of its World Heritage sites have no disaster plans for fire, for flood. Um, Some of them are in conflict zones. And we saw the kind of devastation that can wreak with ISIS and the damage they did at Palmyra and many other sites. The smashing
0: of the several of the ancient statues in the Middle East, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Italy's even ended up turning to crowdfunding <laughs> to shore up some of its monuments or uh, to private investment to restore really popular tourist sites even like the Colosseum, which is pretty amazing. Um, Notre Dame was in desperate need of repairs for several decades before right. it, They fire were happened. in the middle of
0: a renovation, yeah. actually, when the fire broke out. Yeah, so yeah.
1: And it's not unusual that fires happen that way during a renovation. Um, But this renovation was really urgently needed because there had been such a delay in basic maintenance. Some simple things like um, they had a leaky roof and that caused structural instabilities, um, stone cracked um, and so forth. The exterior had acid rain problems. Cathedral spokesmen admitted during the fundraising campaign that pieces of the cathedral would fall off in a high wind. (laughs) (laughs) And gargoyles were broken and things like that. Um, In Brazil the the cause of that fire at the National Museum had been pegged to the fact there had been such harsh funding cuts um, and their fire prevention system was really out of date. So this lack of attention um, and lack of funding and investment in these historic sites is really behind a lot of the damage and the devastation that you see um, in terms of these fires and, and other disasters.
0: And in my mind it's just almost kind of, it's a doubly exceptional loss just because yeah. so, much, so much of that stuff is irreplaceable and yeah. even like th- a cathedral can be rebuilt, yes, or be repaired, but as far, like the National Archives in Brazil, a lot of that, yeah. those artifacts are just can't be, you yeah. re- oh, we're just gonna quickly remake this, you know, 2000-year-old yeah. tribal
1: mask yeah. and things like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, these to ancient
0: th- documents. yeah.
1: Yeah, to to go back to your original question. The fire at Notre Dame, luckily a lot was saved and a lot was preserved. um, Partly because of the ingenuity of the original medieval builders. Um, But the National Museum in Brazil was completely burned down and they had about 20 million artifacts they think on site. They are going through this year-long process of sifting through the rubble trying to recover what they can. They've only gotten about 2,000 artifacts out of that so far. They've lost irreplaceable recordings of native languages that have died out. Um things like that, you know, collections, the the life's work of brilliant scholars that we just we can't replace. So that, I think, is devastating. And in Notre Dame, we were in some ways lucky that so little was, relatively little, Mm -hmm. was lost in terms of, you know, initially, it was thought that fire had consumed the whole structure. I remember watching it and my friends and my colleagues commenting on Facebook and and emailing each other going, oh my god, I'm sitting at my desk in tears, I can't believe the whole structure's gone. They say the stained glass is gone. They say the fire's in the towers now. And in the end, um, the the sort of the ingenuity of those medieval artisans who built the building knowing that medieval cathedrals catch on fire all the time. There are a, there's a long history of fires in medieval buildings. And so um, elements like the stone vaulting, which is like, it's like having a stone ceiling that protected the bulk of the building from that fire in the wooden roof. And, and the sort of the quick action of the firefighters who cooled sto- the stone to prevent thermal shock from doing severe damage to the stained glass. And the, the ingenuity of the clerics and the first responders that formed a human chain to move relics and priceless art out of the building really saved um, a good portion of what we thought might have been lost in the fire at Notre Dame.
0: That leads me just right into our next question then, just seamlessly, is you stated in your article that you had published in The Conversation and then was later picked up by the Houston Chronicle that uh, you said the Notre Dame Cathedral has an influence that goes way beyond its physical structure. Uh, can you expound some more on that and what you mean as far as Notre Dame's influence? Like, why is it such a big thing, aside from it's an iconic landmark of Paris, but what, kind, what did you mean beyond the physical structure?
1: Yeah, so medieval cathedrals, they were a place that people gathered for worship, but they were also a place that employed a lot of people um, to supply the cathedral, to supply the community of priests that said mass there attended to the sacred artif- um, relics there. It was a place that just in its construction alone represented an enormous technological achievement Um, of the Middle Ages, but it also was at the heart of a lot of the social and cultural and economic life of the neighborhood of the city. So the cathedral contains uh, sacred relics, so these can be the remains of saints or items that a saint owned or wore or touched in their life, Um, and people will travel, still travel today, to religious sites. Um, Catholics, for instance, um, still undertake travel for religious or spiritual purposes, which is called pilgrimage. And it's not unique to Christianity. People of many faiths undertake pilgrimages.
0: Most famously to Mecca and Medina for Muslims. Exactly,
1: yeah. And so the cathedral, as a site of pilgrimage, um, would have drawn people from across France and across Europe to visit there. And this had the same impact that um, sort of tourism does on local economies today. And so the local um, you know the local medieval economy um, revolved around in part supporting these pilgrims and their needs. The building was constructed in such a way. Um, so you think about traffic patterns, right? You think about the the flow of people. Um, we don't think of medieval, masons uh, and artisans as thinking about such a modern concept, but they absolutely did. So the church is constructed so that you can still have religious services in the altar in the main core of the building while pilgrims are filing around the outside of the church visiting smaller altars and chapels and relics. And so those pilgrims had an enormous economic impact and cultural impact. The cathedral also brought together people that lived in the city with those travelers and with scholars who would travel from all over Europe to study um, at the cathedral school. The cathedral had a community of priests attached to it in a small compound next to it, and they were called canons. Um, And they said mass at the cathedral, they carried out administrative tasks, and um, they had a school there. They were responsible for training priests in the diocese um, around Paris. Notre Dame was a huge landowner. Um, So in addition to drawing pilgrims and tourists, um, it also gathered donations um, from people who wanted the priests there to say masses for the benefit of their soul with the the idea that that would help them get into heaven. And so their donations weren't just cash. They also gave land. And so the cathedral, like many monasteries and other parts of the Catholic church in medieval Europe, was an enormous landowner. So they had tenants and they had all the complications that, comes with, that come with that and with overseeing crop production and things like that. And so the community, the community of priests attached to the cathedral helped to administer that uh, and the other sort of resources that the cathedral controlled. So that's another way the cathedral contributed to the community, was as a landowner and as an employer, as a landlord, as an entity that controlled all these resources people needed to live.
0: Including one of the very first universities in Europe Yeah, was centered in Notre Dame.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So what we call the Sorbonne today, uh, or the University of Paris, grew out of the school that the cathedral canons had to train priests for the diocese. Because Paris was such a big thriving, bustling trade center because the French royal court was centered there and it was growing very powerful in the 12th century in the 1100s. It attracted a lot of the best scholars in Europe um, because they were looking for patrons. Um, They were looking for opportunities to make a name for themselves and the way that medieval scholars did that is they debated each other in public not just like rent a lecture hall debated each other, they would go to a public square and it was a real show. It was like entertainment for people. People got really involved in this and engaged in it. And so these scholars were flocking to the cathedral community in Paris and it grew and it grew and its reputation grew until finally there were so many famous scholars there and there were so many students coming to study with them that um, the, the king and the church, the local bishop, decided they needed to be organized. Um, and so right around the year 1200 and just after, there's this flurry of documents trying to organize them into a, their own institution. And nobody in medieval Europe had a clear idea of what a university should really look like at that point in time. There were organized centers for higher learning elsewhere in the world, um, in the Islamic world, um, in Asia, but in medieval Europe, uh, the university kind of evolved in a number of different places and Paris was the most famous university in the Middle Ages. It was a religious entity. Um, It was chartered by the Catholic Church and it was predominantly still to train priests. The most prestigious degree it offered was in theology but it became this big institution that grew out of Notre Dame and out of the community there and it didn't move far it just went right across the river to the left bank where it established the Latin quarter Um, it established this famous intellectual community there and that becomes its own sort of cultural and intellectual phenomenon Um, for centuries right you think about you know Puccini writes the opera La Vie Boheme because about People living in the Latin Quarter, artists and students, intellectuals, and the kind of community that grows up around people who want that kind of intellectual life and expression and freedom, all living in this area because it is spun off from the cathedral right across the river. And then even today, it draws tourists for that same reason. The university is still in the Latin Quarter, you know, right across from the cathedral. Yeah.
0: And then I mean just kind of putting yourself back into the medieval world then for a second is that you have Paris which I mean today which is not to say that the cathedral is not still impressive in Paris it's not still one of the defining landmarks in Paris but we think of Paris today we think of the Eiffel Tower we think of Mm -hmm. you know all of these you know the Arc de Triomphe the all these more modern things which didn't exist obviously in medieval Paris so then you have the idea of the sprawling medieval town mm-hmm. that is has commanded almost you know by this enormous structure uh the Notre Dame Cathedral. It was a big deal back then. It still draws tourism today, but is there any other reasons why a non-historian like Should care about? That sounds like a very callous question, but then, but I mean, it was, it's a question that several people, you know, asked even at the time. It's like, well, this thing is, you know, burned down and damaged. Why should we care? What is it that, you know, why do we care that an ancient medieval building uh, has suffered damage in a fire?
1: You're right that the cathedral is, it's an iconic building um, for tourists, for people in France. And all you have to do is remember some of the coverage of. Parisians and tourists from all over the world joined together in horror watching it burn the reactions these visceral reactions from people around France at watching it go up in flames Um, and they were so deeply struck and horrified at it it has real emotional resonance um, for people around the world but apart from that the cathedral has an enormous historical scientific cultural, artistic value, and also an economic value to its community, Um, right? It's one of these great drivers of tourism for the local area. Notre Dame is also, I think, a really good representation of one of the things that to me is most exciting about history and the way we understand it, and one of the things that I am excited to talk to people about in talking about the cathedral and its significance and why we should care about the process of its restoration and this big debate around how we should restore it is the chance to talk about the fact that history isn't just stuff that happened in the past. History is a living discipline because the way we understand the past changes because we change. Um, As our society evolves, Right, the questions that we ask about the past change. You know, 100, 150 years ago, not that many historians were asking, what was life like for everyday people? And now a lot of historians are grappling with that question. Um, You know, what was it like to be a farmer in the Middle Ages? What was it like to be an artisan, um, to make shoes, to brew beer in the Middle Ages? Um, Are there medieval recipes for beer? What did they taste like? (laughs) There's some Belgian monks that just started brewing beer again for the first time in 200 years and they're using a medieval recipe. Historians are working on all kinds of things to connect us more strongly with the past and to learn from it. And I think that's that's tangibly valuable in terms of the way that it drives tourism dollars, the way that it drives um, some sectors of our economy. Um, but I think it's also culturally, historically, scientifically valuable um, in a lot of ways that drive future knowledge production. For instance, And this is kind of off the off subject, I know, but um, go for it. So like maybe 10 years ago, there was a big news article that came out, a big news item. Um, There was an Anglo-Saxon manuscript, which is like early medieval, right, from early medieval England. And it's full of these medical treatments and recipes, and some of them sound really offbeat. Um, But there's a scholar working on them, she gets curious about a few of them, she convinces some scientists to make them up in a lab and test them to see if they have any actual medical properties. And they find that there is this one recipe that when you prepare it exactly as the manuscript specifies is a new kind of antibiotic. I mean it's, it's not only works, it works against superbugs. It was incredible. Um, so the the idea that the past is the past, that we have this complete understanding of it, or that there's nothing to learn from it, um, you know, that that modern and and things are the sum of the the sort of pinnacle of human knowledge, is not the case.
0: I think it's very <laughs> limiting, especially to think of the history as like, oh well, you know, the ignorant. Yeah. Our ignorant forefathers, if you will, and today yeah. we're you know an enlightened society. We're a better society for it. Um, I think, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. That there's a lot of things that I think the past can still teach us, and mm-hmm. or rather reteach us. I mean, if we were rediscovering what they already knew. Um, you kind of touched on this in in your, in your answer, but and I'm curious to just get your opinion. So there's a yeah. lot of plans been put forward for the restoration, and people yeah. are saying like. Um, that we want a, a solar panel roof for the Notre Dame, we want uh, a recycled plastic spire, uh, you know, things like that for, you know, to represent, you know, cleaning our oceans, things like that. What's your, like, do you, and that then, and then, you know, so you, you can find articles that are people saying that are horrified by this, and people are saying that, like, this is a great chance to, to be quote unquote progressive. What's, what's your take on, the, on reconstructing old buildings like this?
1: Yeah, I think some of the more conservative reactions to some of the initial plans called them architectural warts. (laughs) So yeah, there's all these great debates about the reconstruction of Notre Dame and what it'll look like, right? Um, The French President Macron has said, oh, it'll be done in five years in time for the Paris Olympics in 2024. And there's a lot of people that have done reconstruction and renovation of buildings like this, of medieval buildings, that say 10 years is a more likely estimate. There are also a lot of issues around uh, this idea that's been put forward um, by the French minister, Edouard Philippe, that this international called architect is going to look for a new design uh, adapted to the, he said, the techniques and challenges of our era. People are already raising questions about whether that's going to run afoul of laws in place about historic preservation um and what you can do to historic buildings the kind of materials you have to use whether you have to keep it within the same spirit and style and aesthetic of the original building so they may run into some problems there with some of these more modern designs if they eventually adopt one the official so there's this official competition uh right for calls for architects and architectural ideas that'll go on for a little while Um, but some of these initial images that have come out some of them are very shocking. Overall, I think though that the main themes I'm seeing in the new designs, the idea of using glass to bring more light into the building, the idea of growing trees or growing a garden on the roof, they're not that far off from some of the general and foundational concepts. So one of the things for me that makes Notre Dame exceptional is that When it was built, in the 12th and 13th centuries, it was at the cutting edge, architecturally and technologically for its time. Um, It was one of the earliest major cathedrals to be built in the Gothic style, which was brand new at the time, revolutionary. And one of the points of the Gothic style, one of the major goals of it, is to bring light into the building. Um, by using architectural supports like flying buttresses, which are those um, exterior kind of legs that you see around the outside of Notre Dame Cathedral. Um, Using architectural supports to take the weight of that massive roof in the upper walls and move it out and down so that the walls can contain a lot more glass and windows and bring more light into the building. So these ideas for these new designs, they look kind of wacky and weird to us, placing these sleek, modern roofs and lines on top of elaborate Gothic stonework. But they incorporate new ideas that are really interesting to think with. I think because they have these really intriguing resonances with the past, I don't think that the new designs Let me put it this way. Um, I think had we had some of the technologies and materials available now, had they been available to the original builders, they might well have taken advantage of them. Hmm. So for instance, there many of the new designs use the idea of a glass roof to bring more light in now obviously it's not going to make it all the way through those stone ceilings the stone vaults Mm -hmm. Um, but the idea of bringing in more light is very medieval it's very close to gothic architecture the idea of creating a garden um, underneath the glass roof um, there are, you know, cathedral. There are cathedrals with gardens. Um, the Barcelona Cathedral, for instance, has a small garden on the rooftop. At Notre Dame Cathedral, they kept bees on the rooftop before the fire, and they actually survived it, which is pretty amazing. The originator of Gothic style was Abbot Suger of Saint Denis, which is not that far outside Paris. He said one of his main goals was to bring light into the space. So the idea of a solar roof or a glass roof, I mean, if he could have done it, he very well might have. Cathedrals also have always been product of the social trends and concerns of their day. They changed to accommodate crowds uh, who wanted to attend sermons, or they changed to accommodate uh, large numbers of pilgrims. So the idea that you might open the roof space to the public, um, I think is in line with that idea that the cathedral changes in response to the needs of the people who are coming there. And I think then about recent trends to turn unused infrastructure and space into green space open to the public, um, like the High Line Park uh, in New York, right? Turning this disused elevated railway line into a popular public park. The fact that there are other historic areas that are open to the public as green spaces in Europe. Um, the gardens in Versailles are open uh, partly as a public park. In Rome, people walk their dogs on the chariot racing track at the Circus Maximus. So I don't think that some of the proposals are that outrageous. That said, I really favor the proposals that keep the original roofline and the original shape of the building. Um, I think, to me, what's the most shocking are some of the new proposals for a, a new spire um, that really change the, the outline of the building. I think it's going to be really interesting to watch the debates and discussions um, in the public, in the media, also in uh, the French political sphere going forward um, about whether to try to reconstruct the roof at Notre Dame if it's even possible um, or whether to embrace some of these new ideas and technologies. I also think this debate about how to reconstruct Notre Dame really gets to the heart of how cathedrals aren't just kept in the past. Notre Dame itself is the product of a lot of change over time. We look at it and we see a medieval cathedral that was built in the 12th century. But the fact is most of the gargoyles um, were replaced uh, in the 19th century or earlier. Um, The spire was completely reconstructed and changed. Much of the stained glass was produced in the 1960s and replaced then. Um, there are a lot of elements of that building that were replaced and changed in the last 300-400 years in different, a series of different renovations. Medieval buildings, like our understanding of the past, they evolve um, as our ideas of what the past was evolves. The biggest renovation of Notre Dame was done in the 19th century after Victor Hugo's famous novel The Hunchback of Notre Dame came out. Um, And at the time he wrote that novel, the cathedral was a mess. Um, It had suffered through a lot of damage in a series of uprisings. At one point, uh, Huguenots had come through and smashed a lot of the statues um, because they were statues of Old Testament kings that they associated with the throne, with the crown. A lot of the stained glass had been damaged in, in about 1830. Um, So when he wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame, he's writing it about a building that is already um, very much very damaged. And then there's this big renovation under a young architect um, called Viollet-le-Duc. And he's famous for renovating a lot of medieval buildings around France, including some of the most famous. Viollet-le-Duc, he doesn't just restore them to the original, he goes further. He makes them more Gothic. He adds more pointiness, more spires. Um, He rebuilds the spire, but he rebuilds it taller, Um, things like that. And that's part of this interest in the 19th century in the Middle Ages that leads to what's called medievalism, which is the idea of being interested in a Middle Ages that is this romanticized idea of the Middle Ages, right? It's the Middle Ages that you see in Disney movies. <laughs> um it's the King middle Arthur ages the round table. Yes, exactly. These stories
0: these these romanticized stories of the kings and the queens and yeah. the nobility and chivalry. Yeah. Idea.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um and so there's a lot of 19th century images and writings and novels, like Walter Scott, for instance, um, about this romanticized idea of the medieval past that viollet Le Duc was criticized for taking part in a little bit. So the Notre Dame that we look at and see as a medieval cathedral today is a product of change through the centuries already. I also like to tell my students in class Um, that the way that we experience medieval buildings, cathedrals or castles, is really different from how medieval people would have experienced them. Because we look at them and we see these bare, gray stone walls. And medieval people would have walked into a space that was plastered and painted. Every inch would have been covered in color. Um, The walls, the columns, the ceiling, often the ceiling would have been painted with scenes from saints' lives, from the Bible. They would have been um, commented on and observed as pilgrims sort of shuffle through the aisle and they wait to get to the relic and have their their sort of moment um, of prayer and contemplation. They have all of these things around them to to look at and discuss to retell uh, the stories of of saints and the Bible and Christ and Mary um that they remember that they've been taught um and so the buildings that we walk into today are already very different mm-hmm. than they would have been in the middle ages
0: which kind of goes back to the the departure from medievalism then and kind of again the the modern fascination with how did the common person live how did mm-hmm. the i mean that's very reflective of that change in perspective i think yeah. and so Running along with that idea, then, what are some of the things that we can take away as Oklahomans living in Stillwater, Oklahoma, attending Oklahoma State University? What are the things that we can? What are the lessons we can take from that? As far as you know, how do we preserve our own history? How do yeah. we view our own? You know, these historical buildings on campus. Yeah. A lot of uh, Oklahoma State University's changed. What with uh, Bennett Hall was torn down, mm-hmm. the uh, Engineering Annex building was torn down there, and they're replaced with these. Uh, the newer in the modern well, I mean in the case of Bennett Hall, it was literally a parking lot, but uh, but to make way for these larger uh, newer buildings on campus, how do we, what are the lessons we take away from something like this as you know, we don't we don't have a cathedral here at OSU necessarily, but what are the still lessons that we can take from this?
1: Yeah, one of the things that all the change on campus has highlighted for me is how much people do care about these buildings that represent the past because they represent they represent people's memories, they represent our common history, our common, um, you know, in, in many ways if you look at historical buildings around the world, um, you know, our shared human heritage. Um, and here at OSU, I think I'm not an architectural historian, um, but So this is just my personal opinion now. (laughs) Um, But I think every campus has its own approach to that tension between maintaining a sort of aesthetic unity and historical fidelity, faithfulness to the past, to people's memories of what OSU has been to them and to their families, versus current trends, current technology, um, and adapting to the future. From my perspective, I think OSU's done a pretty good job maintaining that aesthetic appeal in terms of for instance, um, using a building material like red brick across campus, but still, and, and maintaining that overall feel, but renovating buildings uh, with a sensitivity to their historical period and to keeping some of those identifying historical features. The history department, for instance, is in Murray Hall, which used to be a dorm um, and was a building built in the first few decades of the 20th century. Even though it's been thoroughly renovated within the last 10, 15 years, it's kept a lot of that period identity. It still looks unique compared to something built in a much more modern style like the business building. So I think overall the university has been able to navigate that tension uh, between the past and the present in fairly sensitive ways where it's chosen especially to renovate the older buildings.
0: And the history department itself has uh, several programs dedicated to history and its preservation even here in Oklahoma, doesn't it? Um,
1: Absolutely. Um, So we offer undergraduate classes and track in our um, graduate uh, degrees on what we call public history. And a big part of that is training in historic preservation. We have alums that work in historic preservation around the state and in the region, and who engage with um, you know local community organizations that are dedicated to preserving cultural heritage. Um, preserving um, historic sites as well.
0: So what are some of the themes on that come up when we're speaking of Notre Dame and great cathedrals and historical archives? How, what are some of the themes that come up and how they relate to Oklahoma locally?
1: I think one of the larger benefits of the debates and the sort of public conversations around how to rebuild Notre Dame and how it got to the stage that it needed such extensive renovations um, is the understanding that people care passionately about historic conservation and maybe why they should. Um, And historic conservation isn't just something that happens at big international sites like the Colosseum or Notre Dame or Machu Picchu, which is another topic of concern right now. It's also an issue that touches us right here at home in Oklahoma. And for instance, one of the things that really represents how attention to historic preservation, one of the sites that really um, is an example of how attention to historic preservation and commemorating events that are important um, in our shared past, Um, and how that can affect a whole community is the Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum uh, that commemorates the 1995 uh, bombing. And that both helps us and our kids understand the impact of that day. And uh, at the time it was being built, it drew grants uh, from the federal and state level level that helped to revitalize that area that's now Bricktown, um, which has had an enormous impact on the community there. So when we talk about the need for more attention to historic conservation and what it can do for a community, um, we can think about that right here at home too. Um, And one of the things I talk with my students about is how the way that we treat the past affects us all, not just in the classroom, but how it's an ethical and a political issue. It touches us all as humans, as citizens of a democracy where we can advocate for our priorities. If you care about the past, if you care about how we remember it, um, whose stories get told, um, as taxpayers um, who can advocate for funding for these sites. Um, and as tourists and visitors, you know, that Civil War battlefield you stop at on your summer vacation um, or, you know, the the local um, cultural centers that your kids go to on field trips, those are all part of how we understand our shared past. And we all have a part in how those stories get told and how we support them.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of the Pokes Podcasts. Check us out online at castokstateedu slash pokespodcasts for even more great content. We'll continue bringing you content bi-weekly, and until next time, we wish you and yours a hearty Go Pokes. And now, here's Dr. Graham's response to our regular closing question. How do the arts and sciences make the world better?
1: One of the things I do in my free time uh, is that I enjoy video games and I enjoy um, some of the big shows that uh, have come out recently, like Game of Thrones that just ended. Um, And the way that many of these feed on information about the past, are inspired by the past, um, are inspired also by new discoveries. Um, I think, for instance, about the Assassin's Creed series of video games, which is inspired both by a sort of sci-fi approach to new DNA related discoveries and new VR technologies, but also a sort of a deep dive into periods of our past, including the medieval past, uh, Renaissance Italy, the Crusades, and so forth. And video games like that, uh, TV shows like Game of Thrones, they're billion dollar industries, right? Um, They're an enormous part of our shared culture um, and our, Uh, sort of cultural lexicon now. Um, And they thrive off of marrying new discoveries from the arts and the sciences, together with this creativity of um, people from, you know, art history, from architectural history, from STEM disciplines. Um, So what really excites me is the way that sort of new media and new creativity and new industries are feeding off of the fusion of all of these different disciplines. Um, that none of them exist in a vacuum, that they can all inspire each other.